0: Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Hello, everyone. Good morning. My name is Ivana Stradner, and I'm a Jean Patrick Fellow at American Enterprise Institute. And I'm delighted to welcome you to our webinar, Defending the 2020 Elections, to discuss lessons from Europe in countering Russian meddling. While Russian election interference caught most Americans off guard in 2016, the countries of Central and Eastern Europe were not that surprised. Those countries have been dealing with Russia's malign influence for decades. And given that the 2020 elections in the US are just around the corner, we have invited Eastern European experts to share their experiences on how to deal with disinformation campaigns. In other words, what lessons can the United States apply from these countries' experiences to defend its own elections? It is my honor to welcome our speakers. Today with us, we will have Knathen Shelly, who heads a Georgian think tank civic idea, fighting Soviet legacy in Georgia, confronting Russian propaganda, and advocating for sound defense and security policy for Georgia. She also served as the first female minister of defense of Georgia. Igor Bandovich is a director of the Belgrade Center for Security Policy. And before joining um, the Belgrade Center for Security Policy, he was working as a senior program manager for the European Fund for, for the Balkans. Veronika Vichova is head of the Kremlin Watch program at European Values Center for Security Policy. She co-authored a study on how Kremlin propaganda portrays European leaders. I want to thank also Veronica and European Values for working with us in organizing this event. Milan Ivanovic works at the Atlantic Council of Montenegro and he's an analyst at the Digital Forensic Center, which is the first digital hub uh, to counter disinformation. And fake news, as well as propaganda in the Western Balkans. Fred Kagan, my colleague at AI, who is the director of AI's Critical Threats Project, will join me during the discussion. After our speakers present their experiences with Russia's disinformation in their home countries, then Dr. Kagan and I will have discussions, follow up these remarks. I will start with the Western Balkans, which remain Europeans' tinderbox and recently those countries have been experiencing an increase in Russia's malign influence. So given that Serbia just had the elections this past Sunday, I would like to ask uh, Mr. Bandović, if you can tell us a little bit more about Russia's influence in Serbia.
1: Thank you, Ivana. Thank you for hosting me at this prestigious event. I'm very happy to join my colleagues from all over to discuss this important topic. As you said, Yes, we had elections on Sunday and uh, not surprisingly, a ruling party of Serbian Progressive Party of Alexander Vucic won practically three-fourth of all parliamentary seats. This is a result of very uh, problematic authoritarian tendencies that we are experiencing in Serbia since, I would say, 2012. All kind of Authoritarian tendencies, including uh, media control, really dissolving checks and balances within the state institutions, not non-functioning courts, everything which was portrayed by the European Commission as state capture we have in our country. But basically, if I'm thinking what kind of interference or influence has Russia in Serbia today, I would probably in that way, a bit differ from, from the colleagues from, for example, Central and Eastern Europe. Because Russia in Serbia operates in a very friendly environment. So it is very hard to see the real strength and the power of Russia here. Because in other countries, maybe in Eastern Europe or in Central Europe, there is a resistance to that interference. And then you can actually see how much they are pushing in trying to interfere or influence democratic institutions the democratic institutions in these countries. In Serbia, it's really hard to tell. And I'm saying this because uh, Russian interference is not seen through misinformation or misinformation in, in Serbia. It doesn't mean that we don't have misinformation, fake news and everything. But this is basically homegrown phenomenon. It is usually used by our own government. But if you look at how what are the relationships between Serbia and Russia and what is happening immediately before or after the elections, and this goes, I think, since 2010 probably, you will see that our elected leaders. Or to be prime ministers are visiting Russia and visiting Moscow just before or after the elections. And this I think um, is very important because they have direct access really to the to our policies. What is the reason for that? Uh, For those who don't know this, I think there are two. One is unresolved Kosovo issues. And uh, Russia is a strong ally uh, of Serbia in pro- in really prohibiting uh, for the Kosovo to be recognized. And the second reason is that, I think due to the global economic crisis in 2008 and 9, basically the power of the EU was withdrawn from the Balkans. And this power vacuum was pretty much used by the non-Western powers, primarily Russia, but also China. And I think what Serbia is doing um, at the moment is um, Russian interference is not interfering. It is embedded in part of the foreign policy of Serbia. They They are really basically the strategy based on the hedging its bets and pitting Western and non-Western powers against each other. This is what is happening very much with uh, Serbia and parts of Bosnia, which is uh, Serb-populated part of Bosnia. But if you look outside of these countries, you will see Russian meddling in Macedonia. This was evident during the um, the overthrow of Gruevsky government and especially signing of Prespa agreement, which ended basically 30 years old dispute between Greece and Macedonia, where actually Russia was organizing demonstrations both in Macedonia and in Greece in order to try to prevent the implementation of agreement. So I think Russia operates in a in a different ways in different parts of the region, but I think since I'm, I'm from Serbia and I'm talking from Belgrade, uh, I, I, I think I portrayed parts of how it works.
0: Thank you, Igor. Then I'll just also move forward and to ask our speaker from Montenegro uh, to share his thoughts on Russia's meddling, given that Russia also tried a field coup uh, a few years ago. So. We'll be very, very curious to learn more how Montenegro is dealing with those issues, especially given that Montenegro has recently also become a NATO member state.
2: Well, first of all, thank you, Ivana, and hello to everyone. It's my pleasure to be here with my colleagues and discuss such an important issue and topic, not just about you know disinformation, but much more about the hybrid threats that every other country in the world is facing right now. I will start with giving a little bit of an brief an overview of what's happening and maybe relations between Montenegro and Russia uh, overall. So over the course of history, we had really good relations with Russia, but things have started to change when Montenegro decided to pursue the Euro-Atlantic path or integrations. However, I want to be you know, clear in the beginning. Russia does not see Montenegro or Serbia in any aspect as their irreplaceable friend. Much more, the Kremlin tries, tries and tried has tried to use Montenegro as a way to influence and delay further NATO integrations, further European integrations, and doing that to damage the West through the hybrid war it is conducting in the region. The hybrid war under the Kremlin's guidance is the combination of political pressure, of economic pressure, and cultural interference, with, of course, some pro-Russian and anti-Western narratives, followed by active disinformation campaign in local languages, because Russia has a lot of, you know, Uh, not just funded but pro-Russian media in our region with the skillful use of tactics i would say sometimes covered like it happened in montenegro sometimes open russia is seizing every opportunity to exploit the fragility of our systems you know systems in transition that are really you know in the western Balkans, and to take it to its own advantage and as i mentioned they're using moscow friendly media mostly through the channels in serbia Russia is blurring the boundaries, I would say, between what is propaganda on one side and what is disinformation on the other side. And moreover, Moscow is exploiting the fact that two decades ago, West and NATO intervened in Montenegro as well, in former Yugoslavia, where people during which intervention people were killed, and now they're trying to manipulate people since the memories still run deep and the emotions, of course. Uh, when it comes to the Russian meddling in Montenegro into our political system and during our NATO integrations, the meddling has ranged from, let's say, diplomatic protests, launching media attacks against the government, a ban on some uh, uh, products that were made in Montenegro like the wine or cheese. But the most extensive display of Russian meddling in the country was the attempted coup in October 2016 when two when actually GRU officers in help with some pro-Russian opposition party in Montenegro, called the Democratic Front, have have tried to overthrow the government. This was not just, you know, portrayed later on and confirmed by our courts in the country, but also by Bellingcat, which is well-known investigative network of journalists around around the world. And they did it so with the help of Russia Insider, which are their colleagues. So the extent of the influence of Russia in Montenegro or any other country, I would say it's hard or difficult to measure quantitatively, but these events, like what happened in Montenegro and other countries, provide a realistic picture of the Russian meddling. Uh, what happened after 2016 is that we have seen an obvious Russian campaign spreading fake news and disinformation, an orchestrated media campaign to, pro- to attack Montenegrin, uh, Montenegrin uh, tourism. Why tourism? Because uh, tourism of Montenegro it represents one-fifth of our GDP so by striking on our tourism they strike on the whole on the whole state but luckily for us i think as the numbers have shown and i've seen the numbers recently the campaign that they conducted didn't didn't have much impact on overall number not just of russian tourists but on tourists overall so maybe that would be it for for my side on the beginning and later on we can discuss the media setting and everything else thank you
0: thank you milan So I would like to uh, also ask Veronika Vicheva, who is also running the Kremlin watch program and closely watches what Russia is doing in Central and Eastern Europe, um, to share her thoughts um, on on Russia's disinformation techniques, but not only in Czech Republic, but also in other parts of Central Europe.
3: Thank you, Ivana. The interesting thing about our region, specifically the Visegrad 4 countries, is that as a matter of fact, it is very difficult to generalize Russian influence and our responses. Throughout the years, the methods that uh, Kremlin uses to interfere in our uh, domestic affairs have been very well adjusted based on local national vulnerabilities. And the responses to this are also uh, vastly different. As we know, uh, the Kremlin is uh, very skillful at that, and they use various methods based on those local vulnerabilities with the same goal, to undermine democratic institutions, to disrupt our relationship uh, within the European Union, our transatlantic ties. And I think that Milan actually summarized some of the tools very well. It goes uh, beyond only disinformation campaigns, we can see a lot of political influence, economic influence in strategic sectors, especially energy. So what do those countries in Central Europe actually do to uh, defend themselves? First of all, do those countries even realize that they have a problem? This is the first question where the differences are really significant. In Czech Republic, Slovakia and Poland, we can see various levels of acknowledgement. Most of those countries actually do admit that Russian hybrid warfare is a problem in their strategic documents, uh, like the defense strategies, foreign policy strategies. Slovakia hasn't really updated most of their documents since 2005, but uh, with the new government coming to Slovakia, uh, there are efforts to actually update those and include, include these kinds of matters. But then again, for example, in Hungary, there is no mention of Russia or any kind of prioritization of disinformation or foreign influence as a threat in any of their documents. When it comes to specific governmental countermeasures, so what do the governments actually do beyond admitting the problem? There are vast differences as well. Here in the Czech Republic, the government a couple of years ago conducted something called a national security audit, which was a year long process, reviewed our strengths and weaknesses in various new security areas, including influence of foreign powers, which is very innovative for our environment. And based on this document and this very long process, we identified some of our vulnerabilities and we actually do have an action plan based on which we should cover those gaps in the future. In both Czech Republic and Slovakia, we have some smaller units and working groups focused on countering disinformation. Here in the Czech Republic, we have a center against hybrid threats at the Ministry of Interior. There is a STRATCOM unit and a hybrid threats department at the Slovakian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And there are STRATCOM units at some of the ministries in Poland as well. The joint issue or joint problem that I think all of those three countries share to some extent is the lack of proper coordination, which is either completely non-existent or is only informal, which we are hoping that in the future months or years is going to change. Because as we see, for example, um, at the Baltic countries, which are mostly considered being sort of best practices countries which have been realizing this problem for a long time and actually have some long-term comprehensive strategies the coordination between all of those units various ministries and even civil society is absolutely necessary and those kind of systems work usually best because we are facing a network of problems and we have to respond to it with a network again here hungary is A little bit of an odd man out in this group i would say that the position of hungary is actually much more closer to serbia than any of the other central european countries hungary is a russian ally and the hungarian government is basically taking steps that are helping or enabling the kremlin to spread their influence even more with steps like signing the intergovernmental deal with Russian state companies on finishing the pak nuclear plant, like allowing the International Investment Bank into Hungary, which will give a lot of immunity to Russian security officers operating in Central Europe. And there is a lot of challenges that we will have to deal with in the future. I, I would say that with the exception of Hungary, all of those three countries in the group are sort of halfway there, halfway to, towards some kind of proper realization and proper strategy. But there really is a lot of unfulfilled potential in some countries. It's because there is still a big part of political representation that is sort of hesitant. In the Czech Republic, we have a highly pro kremlin president who doesn't have strictly executive powers, but has been a Russian ally for years. In Slovakia, the government is fairly new and still has a lot of things to deal with. And in Poland, there mostly is the coordination problem. I think from the V4 countries, Poland is the more aware country and their relationship with Russia has been a little bit different throughout the years, but there still is a long way to go. One interesting thing that I also think is sort of, uh, uh, cross-regional here is that in, especially in the last months there has been a lot of efforts from the Kremlin side uh, to work on uh, various falsifications of history events. Here in the Czech Republic, we have been dealing a lot with uh, historical monuments and the Kremlin being opposed uh, towards uh, either building new ones or removing old Soviet ones. In Poland, uh, there is a lot of issues uh, in the long term, not only because of the monuments, but also because of various, uh, for example, Polish-Ukrainian relations. Uh, And this has been, uh, in the last months, a common, common phenomenon, partly probably because even the situation inside Russia is becoming less and less stable, and they're using those historical narratives for their own local audience, but also because the response really has been mostly defensive, and the Kremlin sees that it really doesn't cost them much to do these things to us. And uh, we might maybe aware that this is happening, but we haven't really done anything to deter the Kremlin from continuing this assertive or even aggressive behavior.
0: Thank you, Veronica. So I'd like to turn the screen over and ask Ms. Tinadin Kidashali to share with us her experience dealing with Russia's meddling, especially because she was a first female minister of defense in Georgia and now is running. Think tank that is dealing with those issues. So, please, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ivana,
4: and thank you very much for this discussion. I've been talking so much lately about the Chinese influence operations, but uh, and we are in between, I kind of lost the track of anybody talking about Russia anymore. So, thank you for that, particularly. I would start with saying why all those uh, issues are important and why all those operations are conducted by Kremlin. In my country, particularly, but uh, I would say it's not obviously exclusively limited to Georgia. There are four main goals Russia is trying to achieve by the entire operation it tries in Georgia. First of all, and most importantly, obviously, they do not want to have freedom expanded too much to their territory. So from Western side, they already got used to the fact that most of the Eastern European, well, all the Eastern European countries have become members of European Union and NATO. The border shifted too much close to Russia and they don't want to lose that uh, strategic uh, opportunity on the south of their borders as well. So they rather keep Turkey as the blocking state rather than the border moving up towards their already their own border. So that's one of the reasons for not allowing Georgia uh, by all means possible, including obviously and you I'm sure all know perfectly well that it's not just the meddling and uh, disinformation or other influence operations, but uh, we are here living under the physical, conventional war operation, when the 22% of my country is under occupation and uh, Russian troops are all, um, uh, we have, Three military bases and Russian troops are standing in uh, different parts of Georgia, being either on the land or on the sea, and obviously in the air we witness them all the time. The second reason is that they cannot let Georgia be successful, uh, because success in Georgia proves that this project works. The project of fighting for democracy and for liberal democracy actually works and brings the results it's going to have a snowball effect and obviously Russians cannot allow for that for that, because they believe that Baltics escaped too early, so it's not kind of relevant for the rest of them. But if Georgia succeeds now, that will definitely serve its purpose uh, for Central Asian countries, for Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, All those left uh, in uh, so-called Russia's backyard and that's the third point they cannot give up that backyard they still believe that uh, it is their own zone of influence and no one else should intervene so every time there is an attempt Russia Russia responds by all means possible sometimes by brutal force sometimes by the soft power depending on the circumstances and the uh, fourth reason actually, which I strongly believe might be even on top of their list, is that uh, Russia in Georgia fights not only us, not only Georgians, not only government in Tbilisi, but it fights our partners as well by proving that uh, they can do whatever they want, they can act in a way they want, and no one can challenge them and no one can stop their actions. So basically, like in today's China, when we see them, this whole discrediting Western... Um, uh, countries uh, campaign, uh, authoritarian uh, ruling, one-party rule country being the strongest in fighting virus. It's basically the same strategy as Russia is employing uh, in Georgia, that uh, they are the only ones, uh, might be bad, might be uh, uh, occupying the country, might be brutal, but still the only ones available. They're the only ones who are out there, and in case we behave well, then they can even be of assistance to uh, to us and addressing all the needs the country has. So keep, if we keep in mind those goals and purpose that Russian soft and hard power both um, have in Georgia, obviously it makes our life easier to define the uh, strategy as to what to do, how to fight, how to act, uh, what should be the steps we take on a daily basis or strategically, uh, what are the goals we have in our strategic documents. Unfortunately, um, what we are seeing in Georgia year after another uh, is the kind of a policy that dictated out of fear. I've never said that any government of Georgia was serving directly Russia's interests. I've never said different from lots of my colleagues that Georgia now or before has a pro-Russian government per se. But The problem is that uh, especially with the current government that its policy is not dictated from the Georgia's national interests rather than by the fear of Moscow what Kremlin would say how Kremlin would react what Putin's uh, reaction will be and in this process of constantly considering the opinions of Moscow you somehow lose your own agenda you lose your own action plan. You do not really know what to do tomorrow because you have no idea what will be the next press conference Minister Lavrov will have about Georgia. So this is where the problem is, that in this whole process of uh, really uh, huge, very courageous and very, very um, interesting civilian resistance uh, towards the Russian aggressive policies in Georgia, our government somehow lost the track of its own interests. So, again, it's not that somebody calls them every day from Moscow telling what to do or how to act, but because that's what they are waiting for on a daily basis, uh, how Moscow would react, they somehow became the slaves of their own choices. Uh, Officially, uh, Georgia uh, implements the policy of strategic resistance or strategic Patience, as we call it, all our strategic documents have this uh, this uh, wording in it. We are in strategic patience, uh, waiting for uh, the moment when, uh, I will be joking about it, when the stars will align on the sky in a way that uh, the future will smile at Georgia, and then we will just jump into those doors or windows that offer us opportunities. Obviously, it is the biggest problem for Georgia. We, we like talking about Russia as the main source of the problem, Uh, But uh, at the same time, in this whole discussion, we should not forget that uh, if the government is not acting properly and if the government strategy is not properly addressing the issues, then then your own government is becoming number one problem for you and not necessarily uh, President Putin or the Kremlin. So this is where we are now. The issue is particularly important at this moment for Georgia because we are in election year. We will have parliamentary elections in October 2020. Well, hopefully, if the virus allows to have elections, obviously. And uh, we are all looking forward for the change of government, uh, exactly and particularly uh, because of the foreign policy reasons and uh, Georgia's national security reasons. Not that much because of un- high unemployment rates or uh, um, problems with the economy in a country, but more because of the strategic problems Georgia is experiencing t- today in terms of anti-occupation, non-existing anti-occupation policies.
0: Thank you very much for sharing with us your experience dealing with Russia's meddling. And after all the speakers actually presented their experiences with Russia's malign influence, I would leave, uh with a discussion with my colleague, Frank. I would actually like to kick off with a question regarding the elections. So given that here in the USA, we will have elections this year, but also your countries will have elections later this year, although Serbia just had a parliamentary elections this past Sunday. I would like to ask you to tell us more about electoral interference. What is Russia doing to influence your elections and how your governments are responding so what are the techniques and that you use to deal with those
2: i can jump in there
0: Thank you.
2: so basically right after serbian elections we have elections in montenegro at the end of august so far you know and not just around the election we have seen a strong you know presence of the russian information through their media they control or they fund within the region so, regarding the situation around the elections and the media because it 's like two parts of the same coin, I have to say that regarding media, more problem is caused by the media outside our country than within the country and it 's not just about the media it's also the quotes and statements coming from let's say for a Minister of Foreign Affairs of Russia Mr Mr Lavrov, who was recently to Belgrade and also commented on the Montenegro and the upcoming elections over here, but also the Hard situation we are having with the church right now. Uh, so regarding regarding the upcoming elections, we have seen like a lot of influences, a lot of you know meddling coming from the media in Serbia. For instance, uh, in Montenegro, we have only two major, let's say pro-Russian portals that spread all kinds of disinformation, but mainly are quoting and using Sputnik, which has its own desk in Belgrade, or some other pro-government media in Serbia to spread all kind of propaganda, fake news, and other kind of disinformation regarding Montenegro. Actually, I have to mention that together with NATO COE from Riga, we did an extensive research regarding Sputnik content, because they identified Sputnik as one of the main influences that, you know, channels of influence that Kremlin has. So being that they have the desk in Belgrade, we the Atlantic Council together with NATO COE did a research and we actually covered the whole year of 2018. So analyzed over 12,000 articles. And that's something that Veronica mentioned before. One of the main, one of the main narratives, you know, when, uh, it was uh, historical revisionism. So they claim that Montenegro doesn't, you know, have its own state, that it's part of Serbia. And whenever you go, whenever narratives you claim in your own country, the same thing applies to every other country that's put, that Russia is trying to meddle in. So it's just the local context that differs, but the ways of influence are completely the same. So, after meddling in, the, in, former, in former presidential elections in 2018 and allegedly coup in 2016, Montenegro did many things. So I would like to point a few of them out. But first of all, I would like to say that you know dealing with hybrid threats, any form of hybrid threats, require not just strong stance from the government but also the NGO, the media, and the society as a whole. Because you know meddling into someone's territory and into someone's political system doesn't you know, just tackles the government, it tackles the whole state. And the answer should be you know, coming from all aspects of the state. So as strangely it may sound, I would say that the coup in 2016 was a good thing. Why? Because it opened the eyes to our public it opened the eyes and raised the awareness of what Russia is willing to go to achieve their goals, ultimately. And, you know, uh, of course, there's still some part of the population, mostly the pro-Russian guys, that doesn't believe it happened, but facts coming from international players, as well as from our own courts here, you know, go, get to the point. Also, what else? The government now is uh, the, the developing the national strategy for countering hybrid threats, which is a huge thing for us here. And even though it's you know uh, I have a little part in it, but still it's early in development, so I'm not able to talk more about it. The main goal, you know, is to pick up on good practice that was done in the Baltic states mainly, and also in the like in the countries like Czech Republic, you know, which is which I think that you know has done a great job dealing with Russian influence on every on every level, not just political. So we are trying here, you know, to 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 combine all the good practices from other countries to create a national strategy for countering hybrid threats that should be up in mid-August, I think. So, beside beside DFC or Digital Forensic Center, which I'm part of, there are a lot of initiatives and NGOs dedicated directly or indirectly to countering disinformation. And I think that's really important. What is really important is also uh, they're, they're working together. Like, they should not be separated because, you know, then they're overlapping activities. I think they mostly need to focus what we are doing here and doing together activities. Also, media is a big aspect of every country when it comes to countering disinformation. Uh, luckily for us, as I mentioned before, in Montenegro, there are only two major and influential, I'm um, being honest, influential pro-Russian portals. The other ones are mostly pro-government, just biased to some extent, but you will never see them, you know, copy-pasting some conspiracy theories, unverified facts, or even some, you know, fake news like the other guys do. So... So, considering media, we're in a good position here.
0: Just exactly the question, because you work in the digital forensic center. Can you just give us maybe a concrete example of a Sputnik story that then you know spread into local media? Just to have an idea of what exactly Russia puts Sputnik is doing.
2: Uh, there actually, when it comes, what comes to my mind is a lot of you know things about coronavirus because you know it's it's something that it's something that bothers me the most lately, and all of us here. I think that story that came up not just not in our media but was picked up by our media was that coronavirus was developed in Georgia in US lab in Georgia. And like like 2 days after it was picked up by our own media all people many people on social media Facebook Twitter started writing and sharing conspiracy theories here let's let's say we have uh, MPs members of parliament who are you know devoted to creating uh, creating conspiracy theories they picked up on it and it even spread even further so once it is out it is really hard to contain it but luckily for us we you know we, we contacted the people from Georgia we have really good cooperation with the guys there and they help us to debunk not just this but many other things that are related to coronavirus so when you ask someone dealing with this information right now what's the latest issue and what's the latest problem, I think 99% will say coronavirus. But this is just an, an example of a funny story, like coronavirus developed in Georgia, like no way, but many people do believe it.
0: Some other thoughts on elections interference?
4: Well, thank you for for, for sharing that story, because if anybody asks me the question that uh, Ivana just asked you, I would also say that the most recent and most uh, Famous story uh, of Russian propaganda about Georgia is exactly about the American, uh, well actually now Georgian, it was established by Americans, it goes uh, by the name of uh, late Senator Richard Lugar. A lab that was uh, that is here since 2010 and is probably the, one of the major reasons or actually exclusively the only reason why georgians felt so confident during the virus outbreak that we knew that there was a professional uh center run by professionals run uh, with all the new and modern equipment uh, available for all of us to detect to to check and to protect as well at the same time this is Uh, Georgia is the country with probably the the lowest numbers in Europe of both infected and diseased. We have per capita, obviously. Uh, We have only 13 deaths so far and and very, very low numbers of the the infected. And the Lugar Laboratory was really uh, the most instrumental part of this whole story. But it's been for years now. It's not for the first time since 2012. Minister Lavrov keeps uh, having these press conferences time after another about lugar Lab being responsible for, at that time, swine flu, then uh, H1N1, and now the uh, COVID-19, and probably the story will continue forever like that. But as for the election meddling itself, um, well, the number one problem actually, as it appears right now for Georgia, is the um, cybersecurity. We were attacked last October in the heaviest way that ever happened in Georgia since uh, 2008-August war. Thousands and thousands of websites were shut down. There was a picture hanging on all of those websites of our former President Saakashvili saying, I'll be back with a nice uh, photo of him smiling, smiling at all of us. And then, as it was proved by uh, several investigative ref- reports not only uh, generated in Georgia, but also from Dutch, British, German uh, American experts and investigative officials, there was not only not, not just Russia identified generally speaking, but there was a very particular unit within the group identified being responsible for that attack. That was not the only attack that we witnessed since October last year, this big one. We had the waves of smaller attacks on our cyberspace. And the very last one that is not still investigated, and we don't really know what is the level of the, and size of the damage that a country faced, was on the Central Electoral Commission and on our voter lists. So again, we don't know yet what it's going to be used for. We don't know what was the purpose of this attack. Maybe it's just to raise questions in Georgia. Maybe they're not even going to use it, but just to bring this uncertainty to the population. But whatever was the reason, it happened. And we expect that we will see the results of that attack in the elections. Media, obviously, is a big part of it. In Georgia, Sputnik was mentioned here in Russia today. None of them play any role. None of the traditional, official, open Russian media plays any role in Georgia. Nobody is convinced of anything that is said in Russian language as such, regardless of who talks and who says what. Because of that, the Russian media operations in Georgia have a very covert nature. And normally they come to, to our attention through very traditional Georgian news agencies and Georgian news portals, including the conventional media, including the major TV stations and so on and so forth. Most of the time, it's basically playing useful idiots by some of the Georgian broadcasters, but it's not not limited to that. The um, other uh, way of uh, expected meddling obviously will be uh, direct financing of the political parties uh, who usually lack resources and uh, lack uh, finances in Georgia, and it makes them very uh, vulnerable to all kinds of financial operations. Uh, I believe that these elections will be the first one where we will see Chinese also involved in the electoral process. We still need to see it, but I'm pretty sure that uh, 2020 will show a new stream of the interference in our political scene, and finally, that will be those will be the right-wing movements on a rise in Georgia. The extremist, ultra-nationalistic, so-called patriotic forces, who are normally the most fertile grounds for the Russian propaganda, basically claiming um, I don't know the European Union trying to make all of us uh, LGBTs or to have Americans uh, plotting another liberal uh, revolution in Georgia, which will kill the Georgian Orthodox Church and everything related to our Christianity and stories like that. So the ultra-nationalistic forces who are, as I've already said, on a rise in Georgia, Multiplying in numbers, multiplying in platforms, uh, using heavily social media will be the major grounds for the Russian information and psychological operations run in Georgia. And obviously very traditional instruments in the face of the Georgian Orthodox Church, which always was, still is, and probably will always be the uh, useful tool for the Russian propaganda machinery against everything that goes to liberal democracy and strong institution
0: building in Georgia. Thank you. Now I'd like to turn the screen over to Art Kagan. I would like to ask some questions.
5: Thank you so much, Ivana, and thank you to all of our panelists for joining us. With With our Georgian colleague here, I think it's important to note that Russian hybrid warfare does not include only information operations. It also includes military operations up to and including conventional military operations. And Georgia, of course, was the victim in 2008 of an unprovoked and unjustified war of aggression that has led to a situation in which the Russians have occupied and annexed portions of Georgian territory. And I remain very convinced, and uh, the analytical team that I oversee remains very concerned about indications that the Russians are engaging in more, more covert, but still worrisome military activities elsewhere in the Balkans, with night wolves showing up in various places and, and other things that the Russians are doing. So I think it's very important for us to remember that there are military elements of the hybrid war campaign, and the Russians see that, see those elements as supporting the information operations and are not hesitant or reluctant to use them. I'd like to ask, though, as we've, we've talked some about the various attempts that the Russians make to interfere in elections and in the internal affairs of the countries uh, we've been discussing How effective do you think those attempts actually are? Have the Russians succeeded materially, especially in the Balkans, where they haven't seized an occupied territory militarily yet? Have they been effective actually in achieving their aims, in changing policies and changing electoral outcomes? Thanks for the question. I think that, uh, as you rightly said, I think the Russia...
1: Uh, still doesn't have the ambition to really militarily occupy the Western Balkans, surrounded by the European Union, and it will be for them really hard to do that, uh, because between Russia and the Balkans there are a number of NATO states. But what they are doing, and I think they are doing that quite successfully, is that they are spoiling the business of the EU in the Western Balkans. This is, I think, very important. And sometimes I think this is a result of the EU and US really protecting Ukraine after the Kremlin annexation, kind of a Russian uh, rebound. Additionally, if you're speaking specifically about Serbia, as I said before, Russia operates in a very friendly environment here. But still, I mean they have basically their own political party, which is a junior partner in uh, previous, and it will be probably in our current government. So we are not talking about electoral electoral interference. We are talking about step ahead of that, which I think is, I think, very powerful tool. And it will be probably exercised at the moment, in a critical moment, and Serbia will eventually vote whether to join the EU or not. And then maybe Russians will draw or make this government to fall or the, that future government. So I think uh, I think they have tools and they have leverage, uh, especially over Kosovo issue because they were guarantor that really Kosovo will not be recognized in the Security Council. So even if our current leadership decides and this is basically what is going to happen maybe uh, next week in Washington, the president of Kosovo and uh, president of Serbia meeting at White House. I think Russia will, will basically not allow this to happen because they have a leverage over Serbia leadership. But this, I, I think they are quite successful in not really making the country becoming parts of Russia, but in the case of the Balkans, they are really good in spoiling the integration of, of these countries into the eu Euro atlantic uh, community.
3: I don't want to talk about any specific incidents, but when it comes to the effectiveness of, uh, of Russian interference, It usually gets a little tricky because they really use multiple tools and multiple levels and they're usually not creating problems in our countries from scratch. They're abusing the already existing ones, which is why this is very often difficult to measure if you want to see numbers or anything like that. Uh, I think it also goes hand in hand with the election interference, which in no way can be only perceived in the scope of the short pre-election period. I mean, when I look at this region, uh, at our region, if we have dozens of pro-Kremlin channels that spend years criticizing and bashing the European Union, they don't need to start anything specific and new right before the elections into the European Parliament. I mean, their work is already done. So it's difficult to see in what scope we should actually measure the effectiveness But the way I see it, or we see it here at the European Values, is it's important to look at the ultimate goal, because Russian meddling is not a goal in itself. It's a tool towards something. And from our point of view, the goal of the Kremlin, and specifically of the Russian President Vladimir Putin and his clique of oligarchs, is to stay in power as long as possible. This is also why the hybrid tactics used by the Kremlin escalated, especially first after the invasion in Georgia and then later after the start of the war in eastern Ukraine. Because those countries at the direct neighborhood of Russia going through democratic processes, that's very dangerous for the Kremlin because, you know, Russian citizens might see, oh, well, it's possible to have a different form of governance and still live in prosperity. So Vladimir Putin needed to de-escalate this kind of new political direction in his own neighborhood. And in in order to be able to do that, the Kremlin needs the West to be preoccupied with their own problems, to deal with their own distrust towards democratic institutions, to not be unified against what Russia is doing. And I'm afraid that in that sense, I think Russia is very effective because they have been able to continue doing what they are doing very freely. Russian oligarchs can talk as much as they want about how Europe is in decay and how Europe is incapable and disunified. And yet they can have their fancy villas here in Europe and send their children to European universities and keep doing and being aggressive as they are in Ukraine and Georgia and potentially other countries. So if I look at this goal, I unfortunately have to say that, yes, what Russia is doing is quite effective because it serves the purpose that it's supposed to serve.
0: Ms. Um, Gita you just briefly mentioned Chinese also influence both in Eastern Europe and Central Europe. So I'm curious to know whether you see any cooperation between China and Russia in that respect, but also how Russia's and Chinese influence and Malayan influence actually differ in terms of techniques and goals as well.
4: Depends. Uh, I think this is exactly where, depending on the regions, the situation might be very different. I, when I have started my research years back about the China's influence operations, I actually worked very hard to learn how it goes in Central Europe, and particularly on the Czech case, it became pretty obvious for me that uh, for a country like Czech Republic and Georgia, Chinese are using exactly the same methodology and exactly the same uh, ways of working but now I I work on Central Asia a lot and the situation is completely different there. What we can see if we compare those two or see those two together uh, then probably most important is to mention this kind of uh, years-long agreement between the two that one deals with the foreign policy and security issues while the other is more about the economy and uh, business environment, economic influence, and and soft power in in that way. But unfortunately, even that agreement is, uh, if we can call it an agreement, is somehow broke because recently we've been seeing Chinese militaries in several Central Asian countries, for example, particularly in Tajikistan, on the border with Afghanistan, there was a long-time uh, discussion about the role and the ways the Chinese play in in those countries. So, and when it also comes to the foreign policy, to one China policy, obviously, when it comes to the issues like Hong Kong and Taiwan, this is where obviously that agreement is broken, and you don't Chinese do not necessarily wait for the Russia's influence operations to work on you. But at the same time, the research proves that we see. Lots of Russia today is Sputnik type of news and information, if I can put it this way, retweeted by Chinese officials and used by Chinese officials, as well as vice versa. So them, two of them basically serving each other's purpose. One particular issue, for example, that we see on Georgian case, which is very worrisome for us, is the following. We have an anti-occupation legislation in Georgia that disallows any Russian uh, Kremlin-associated company to obtain any property, real estate in Georgia. So, for example, Gazprom cannot come here, and, or Rusneft, whatever, cannot come here and buy anything in Georgia. As well, it could be the same goes for the banks from, from Russia as well. But what we see, what we witness lately is that Chinese companies operating here in Georgia, actually the same ones who were working in Czech Republic also years back, who got bankrupt, apparently had the loans from the Russian banks. And apparently the loan agreement said that on the first and first basis, the property goes to to the creditors. So right now, we are in this situation when we actually face the moment that some of our very strategic assets will actually go to Russia and Kremlin-affiliated banks through that way. So we never sold it to Russians, but at the end of the day, they still end up in Russians' hands. So it depends, again, as I said in the beginning, how we look at the situation and how involved actually China is uh, in a particular country finally obviously the biggest challenge we face we are facing today is in the field of academia because with the decreasing support from western countries particularly the decreasing number of the us scholarships in in countries like georgia the uh, share of those who go to china to the basically communist party headquarters for their education is growing and in 10 years, we will be living in a country we are different from 10 years ago. Most of us went to US or European universities, got the education in, free from party interference. academia. We will have the whole generation of Georgians actually who went to party schools in a way that our parents used to go during the Soviet times. And obviously it's gonna change the uh, dynamics a lot. So I would say number one concern for me particularly when it comes to China today, will be their educational expansionist policy that we are seeing in my country and not only in my country, of
0: Thank you very much. And I would like to thank all our panelists for being here with us and sharing your experiences on how to defend elections and how to counter Russia's malign influence. And I'm sure that our American friends here can also learn a lot from your experiences, given that you've been dealing with those issues for several decades, indeed. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.